Welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign from scratch that you can use for your group and report back on the results of my group that playtests it. As you know by now, this season we're building for the Fallout role-playing game, and as I've noted more than once on this show, if you don't already have a copy of the game, you can pick one up at your local game shop, bookstore, or from the Modifius Entertainment website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. Last week we created the second of three jobs from the job board for our group to play, plus we dropped in the catalyst for another mission down the line. Before we get to building this week, I wanted to take a few minutes to bring up a subject that I've referred to numerous times during both seasons of this show. You've heard me say more than once that the whole point behind having our players develop a backstory is so that we can bring it into play during our campaign or story or whatever we're calling what it is we're doing. I realized as I was recording last week's episode that we've really never discussed how you do that. So let's remedy that today. I want to first note that there's no right or wrong way to drop backstory into a campaign. I will say that if you're writing your own stuff, it's easier since you can build specifically to whatever group or individuals you want to use from the group's various backgrounds. However, even with a published adventure, there are ways to bring in what you need to in order to personalize the campaign as well as potentially ratchet up the drama. The easiest way I've found to do this is to take a named group or individual in the adventure you're using and match them up as close as you can to an individual or group from the backstories you're using. That might wind up adjusting how some things work in the game, but if you've read the entire campaign before you do this, you can see where you need to go to make the adjustments to make it work. Now, if you really want to make it easier on yourself, don't pick the overarching big bad evil NPC to be the one you replace. Make it one of their minions or people of hench. If you're listening to these episodes before you start running the game, the ability to work backstory into the game can begin immediately. You can have one of the groups a character has run-ins with be the group that took Jeb's granddaughters. If you've got a group that's a bit more powerful, expand on that and use them to replace Marvin's Carvins, so they'd be the ones the group would have to handle an episode later when they're retrieving the shipment for Liza. An individual with some stroke could sub in for Victor in the next part of the campaign. Or if it's someone who's got a troubled past, you could sub them in for Amber. I would ask that you not sub out the bad guys from last week's episode. Or if you do, just be aware that you're going to be making a lot of changes as we move along. For friendly faces, swap out any of the folks we've named in the episodes to fit what you need. I'd also argue that if you want to change out a portion of the scenario to fit what you need for your background, then do that. I mean, this is season two of us doing this, so if you've been listening from the beginning, you should be at the point where you're ready and able to do that kind of stuff. If you aren't, don't sweat it. I'm going to give you the perfect spot to drop some background in as a part of today's build. I also wanted to note that if you're wanting to work out getting background stuff into the game, but you aren't quite sure what the best way would be to do it, Hit us up on any of the socials or by email, and we'll do our best to help you out. I would note that on Twitter, you'll get advice from a ton of folks in the gaming community, as our followers list has a bunch of creators and longtime players in it, so they've got a lot to bring to the table. All right, so since we've covered that, I think we need to get building this week's scenario. We left off last week after the group successfully returned Juliet to Paul. I noted at the time that the group still had a decent chunk of daylight left, so they could go ahead and check out the last job they pulled off the board. Ironically, the address given is about two blocks north of where they are at present, which includes what is in the real world a Hyatt Regency Hotel. 
This is the location given as the hotel has been somewhat rebuilt and plays host to folks with a few more means than others, as the group has heard the accommodations are nicer than a lot of the ones they've seen to this point. They'd also know that there are some shadier business people who hang out there and try to make deals with groups willing to make those sorts of deals. Based on the wording of the post, which was, we will pay 50 caps just to discuss our offer, the group is more than likely going to believe the offer is going to be on the shadier side. And they'd be right. Since they've only got to travel a few blocks, they not only won't run into anything on the way, but they'll also get there in about five minutes. The exact directions in the posting lead them into the lobby of the old hotel. However, they're not given a contact, so that's going to require some subtlety to figure out. And in case you hadn't already keyed in on this, this job is going to be very different from the other two. We're going to rely more on the non-combat abilities of your group than the combat ones. This will be a role-playing challenge for some, while others are going to relish the opportunity. We're going to go with a straight-up perception roll. Target is two, and anyone who succeeds will notice two men who seem to be really interested in the group when they enter the building. These are the men they're looking for. They're leaning on the wall between a couple of offices slash rooms slash who knows what, and they're trying to play it casual when the group approaches. The men appear to be in their 30s and are dressed rather well for being where they are. They're wearing three-piece suits, and they appear to have been cleaned rather recently as they aren't caked with tons of dirt, grease, and sweat like just about everybody else they tend to run into. The men have skin the color of eggshells, and their hair is jet black. For the record, they appear to be twins. They come in around 5'9 and about 150 pounds. For those of you who use metric, go ahead and make the conversions. One of the men does the speaking for both. He introduces himself as Corinth, and his brother is Igmon. No last name, and when the group stares at him for the weird names, he just shrugs. Mom was a bit strange. What you gonna do? He nods towards one of the doors and tells them he'd like for the meeting to be more private. Igmon leads, unlocks, and opens the door. When they enter, they find it's a one-room office with two desks and about eight chairs. I'm setting it up as one more chair than the number of members of my group, so adjust as necessary. There are a number of bookshelves lining the walls, but it's obvious they're more for decoration, as the group can only see about a dozen or so books on the shelves. The desks are remarkably clean and neat as well, though that could just be because these dudes are neat freaks. One thing they do notice on the desk is a small tin. They recognize it as the type of tin most folks use to carry their caps in. Corinth picks it up and hands it to whichever member of the group appears to be the leader. He waits a moment, fully expecting the group to count them. If they don't, he nods in surprise, then gets down to business. My brother and I have a job we need done, but uh, it, it can't be known we had anything to do with it. Thus, we're hiring a group to do the job for us. What they need is this. About two weeks ago, an associate of theirs was delivering a package for them when he was ambushed by what he described as a bunch of robots. They didn't kill him, nor did they really hurt him that bad. However, from the number of saws and laser pistols pointed at him, he also knew that not giving them what they wanted would be a bad thing. Corinth did some digging, and the robots, whom he refers to as high intelligence, traded the package for caps and power cells with a rival of Corinth's and Igman's. That's why they need the group. The package in question is described as an old family heirloom, and they ultimately want it back. This is where you can decide what they tell the group the heirloom is. Maybe it's their mother's locket or jewelry. Maybe it's something from their father. Heck, maybe it's a really old clock their grandfather owned. It doesn't matter what the group is told, only that they believe it to be some sort of mundane object. And yes, the group can try a shenanigans check on Corinth. 
It's another perception test with a difficulty of four. Success tells the player that something is off with what Corin is telling him, but his needing this object is not it. The suspicion will be that the object isn't what they're being told it is, but the success will also trip something in their brain that gives them the impression that they probably don't want to know what it is, since that would require asking questions they don't want to ask. That being said, I know my group and somebody's bound to ask Corinth what the package really is. He'll tell them that the object really is what he's saying it is. If there's more to it, they don't really need to know it, because getting their heirloom back is all that matters. He's offering 150 caps for the successful return of the heirloom. The group can haggle, of course, but Corinth has a 15 for his score. Adjust the price accordingly. Corinth will not give the group any further details until they agree to take the job and a price is settled on. The object is located in the executive office at the Kiel Opera House. For a historical note, in our time, the Enterprise Center is located on the site of the old Kiel Auditorium, and the Stifle Theater is attached in the location of the Kiel Opera House. So if you've got a map of downtown St. Louis at the present time, you've got an idea of where things are. Barnabas O'Reilly is the man who's got the item, and he's made it clear that there is no way he's going to deal with the brothers to give it back. Thing is, he has no intentions of selling or trading it. He's got it on a shelf in his office. Now, granted, his office door is guarded 24-7 by a couple of super mutants, so it's not like he's worried about someone coming in guns ablazing to bust through the door to steal it. However, Igmon checked the old blueprints for the building and found a soft spot. There's a window in an office on the same floor, but on the opposite side of the building. As far as he's been able to tell, and this is what he's told Corinth, since he doesn't talk the entire time the group's there, nobody's using the office at the time. So if one could get to that floor and get in the window, they'd be able to make their way around. Igmon will point to the office next to the executive office, specifically the wall between the two. As he does that, Corinth nods and tells the group that Igmon believes there's some sort of secret entrance between the two offices, which would make sense since O'Reilly would want a way to get out of the office in case of ambush. However, the brothers have no idea what it is. In addition to the caps they'll be paid, the brothers also provide the group with two sets of climbing gear, which in this case consists of lots of rope with grappling hooks on the end. The only other thing Corinth asks is that the group do this quietly and without killing anyone unless it is absolutely necessary. We don't need anything potentially getting traced back to us. And with that, the meeting is over. Everybody shakes hands and the group now has a job to do. Now, before we move on, I put Barnabas O'Reilly in as a placeholder. If you've got a group member who has somebody in their past who has issues with them, this would be a good place to put that person in. I do intend for old Barnabas to be a recurring character, so the character background would allow for this person to continue to be a thorn in the group's side until they ultimately deal with him. If nobody has that type of background, then go with Barnabas or a bad guy of your own creation. Picking things back up, the group will want to scope out the Opera House, since nobody in their right mind takes on a job like this without getting as much information as they can. They can, of course, put eyes on the building itself, and we'll get to that in a moment. They can also reach out to any contacts they might have and see if information on the Opera House is available. Now, contacts would be something else of the backstory. Survivor characters should have at least one contact they can use, and members of the Brotherhood should also have one or two they can use, and those contacts shouldn't cost them any caps, if they can make the right deal, that is. If the group doesn't have any, you can go back and use any of the positive interaction NPCs the group has had at this point. They'll have varying amounts of information, which we'll get to momentarily. However, that info is not going to come for free. The group will need to give somewhere between 20 and 25 caps to whomever they're getting information from. And while these could be haggles, 
the group needs to be wary of complications because we've got a very specific result for those, but it's one the group wouldn't know about. So for now, we'll just leave it here. Here's some of the information they can buy and feel free to add or adjust what we've got here. For whatever reason, there's a guy who uses some sort of window washers rig to clean the outsides of the windows a couple times a week. Whomever gives this information just shakes their head because nobody else around here gives a darn about how the outside of their place looks. Just O'Reilly. Rumors abound that there's a number of robots that patrol the inside of the building, but the rumors don't say whether or not they go into the rooms or if they're just more like the first line of defense. O'Reilly tends to be in his office during the day and leaves shortly after the sun sets to head out for dinner and then home. Also, when he's there during the day, he always has a super mutant inside his office as a bodyguard. There's a rumor running around that O'Reilly had something stolen from a couple of wannabe gangsters, and what he stole is worth way more than he thinks it is. Not sure exactly why, but the prevailing opinion is that something's hidden in it. All right, so that's what they get. Also, this is one of the reasons why the group's been getting a few more caps recently. There's another reason, but that comes up later. Since they've got the info, let's handle them casing the Opera House. They're really only casing three sides, because the fourth side is the side that's attached to the auditorium, and there's no good way to check it out without getting in there. And everything they've heard about that tells them that that's not a good idea. So they'll be checking out the east, north, and west sides of the building. The window they want is on the east side of the building, and of course, they find the window washer's rig on the west side of the building. Again, we'll get to that in a moment. The assumption here is that they'll get around the building shortly before nightfall. Now, we've spent a lot of time having our group be inside for the night when the sun goes down, but for this job, they're going to have to break that rule. That also means they're probably going to want one or two of the group members to keep a watch out so that raiders and such don't sneak up on them. They'll note that the building seems to have activity in it until shortly after the sun sets. They'll see a number of different people come out of the building, either in pairs or groups of four, and they all head down the street to the west, heading home or wherever. O'Reilly is the last person to leave, and he's got a half a dozen super mutants guarding him as he heads down the street. Once he's gone, nobody goes in or out during the time they're watching. They also note that while they can make out a few faint lights, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of light in the building. At some point during this first night of casing the joint, they're attacked by a couple of feral ghouls. Those are detailed on page 355. The group's going to want to end this fight as quickly and as quietly as they can, because where there's two ghouls, there's probably more. They might also want to consider breaking off their casing of the building after the encounter, but if they don't, roll a d20. 1 through 10 means nothing, while 10 through 20 means they get two more feral ghouls. Again, this isn't a punishment, just a reality. This is why they always get inside before dark. They can get close to the building once it gets dark, but they have the constant feeling they're being watched, so they'll want to be quick. I'd also strongly suggest agility plus sneak checks difficulty of two to do their best to not be seen. They can note that there doesn't appear to be anyone in the lobby keeping watch, but since they know there are robots doing patrols, at least we hope they know this, going in the front door is probably a bad idea. What we've got them getting close for is to check out the window washer's rig. It's a rig not unlike what you'd see in use today. Metal platform with rails that hooks to ropes attached to pulleys so they can pull themselves up. When they figure that out, they can go back and see where the rig would attach to the east side of the building. They also notice it's got a couple of wheels on the corners of one end, which means it can be rolled to where they need it to be. If you've got any other interesting details you want to put in here, this would be the place to do it. Otherwise, we'll fast forward to the group having their meeting of the minds. Maybe it's off to the side since they'll plan to do the break-in tonight. Maybe it's when they're settling into sleep for the night. Either way, they need to look at everything they know and work out a plan. 
If need be, remind them during their planning that the brothers requested that there be no violence unless absolutely necessary. However, your group may not give a darn about that and might decide to do a frontal assault. If they do that, there are six Mr. Gutsies doing patrols, and they'll have to fight them two at a time. Mr. Gutsies are detailed on pages 363 and 364. And note for the record, they are four levels higher than the group is at this point, so there'll be a real challenge if the group decides to go in that way. Once they've opened fire, everyone in the building will be alerted, so they'd also have to fight the two super mutants. Those are detailed on page 366. And for the record, they'd have to take on three. The two guarding the door and another that comes from the opposite side of the hall to support the others. Needless to say, this would be a bloodbath and it might be one the group couldn't succeed at. We're really looking for subtle and sneaky, so let's break that plan down, or at least the way I would break it down. The group would find a spot not too far from the opera house to post up and wait for everyone to leave, which they'll do shortly after nightfall. Again, the group will want to do their stealth act, so use the same rules as before. The next part of the job will be a bit loud, but they'll have some help when they go to do it. A firefight breaks out close to their location, so the noise from that will cover the noise they make when they move the rig from west to east. Strength plus athletics, difficulty of two to move it. Complications on this will mean the rig's been somewhat damaged during the move and might fail on them before they get all the way up. We'll cover that in a moment. Hooking the rig to the pulley system isn't that hard, so we won't make them roll for it. It's a strength plus athletics roll to use the system to pull themselves up. This is where complications come into play, as another complication on this roll will lead to the rig jamming up about a foot short of where they need to be. At this point, the group has two choices. Go through the window above them and try to sneak their way up to the next floor, or use the ropes and hooks they were given to climb to the next floor and get to the window. The first option will require agility plus sneak checks with a difficulty of four, since they'll be trying to dodge the Mr. Gutsies on this floor, then a second roll since they'll be trying to maneuver their way around the top floor to get to the office in question without alerting the super mutants. Once they pull that off, we'll get to what's next momentarily. The other option requires two characters to make agility and throwing checks with a difficulty of three. These two are trying to throw the hooks up to the next floor and get them to stick. If only one succeeds, that's okay. It just means they've only got one rope to use going up and coming back down. Once that's taken care of, strength plus athletics rolls to climb the rope and get to the window. There's a bit of a ledge there, so the group can sort of kneel there while one of them gets the windows open. It is locked, so they can use their rolls to, to pick said lock, make it a difficulty of one. It's not that hard. This is really just window dressing at this point. No pun intended. They do also want to make sure they open it quietly. So let's use a luck plus sneak check to open it quietly. That is fortunately for them also only difficulty one. Once they're in, it's now a matter of getting down to the office that they need to get to. Have them make agility plus sneak checks with a difficulty of three. That's necessary because it covers the group not making excessive noise and being able to basically hide in the shadows while they make their way down to the office. The door's not locked, and fortunately for them, the mutants start having an argument about the time they get there, so they don't have to worry about being quite as quiet with the door. At this point, we bring our two methods together and get the group into the office. They know which wall the secret door is on, but not where on that wall it is. So let's do a roll for the smart folks in the party. It's a straight intelligence check, difficulty two. Success means they realize one of the bookcases on this wall is a fake, and they find the book to pull to open the door. Entering the office, they'll note it's decorated very swanky. There's fine furniture in here, a very nice mahogany desk, fancy trinkets from all over the world, and it is noted they're all pre-war. 
they're going to have to do some looking for the item and where they might find it depends on what the item is. For my group, it's going to be a small to medium sized clock from way before the war. So that would necessitate them checking shelves. This is the moment where a complication on their information gathering expedition earlier comes into play. If they ticked off an informant, that informant got even with them by letting O'Reilly know someone was looking to steal from his office. What that means for the group is that the item won't be there. Instead, they'll find a note on the desk that says the following. Dear whomever you are, I would suggest that the next time you decide to steal from someone, be a bit smarter about who you decide to steal from. Needless to say, what you want isn't here. Barnabas O'Reilly. P.S. Tell Corinth and his idiot brother Igman I said hello. That'll leave the group heading back to the brothers empty-handed. I mean, they could, of course, steal something else from the office, but as they read the letter, they hear heavy footsteps approaching the door, so the wise move would be to bug out, close the door behind them. We'll pick that up in a minute. If all went well in the info gathering, they find the object they're looking for. As soon as they find it, they hear heavy footsteps headed their way, so again, the wise move would be to bug out and close the door behind them. Either way, just as they get the door closed, they hear the office door open on the other side. They hear some grunting and a voice that sounds like it comes from the very depths of hell itself speaks. Mr. O'Reilly want me to check office for Thingy, but he not tell me where Thingy is. I say Thingy here. A moment later, they hear the door slam, but they don't hear the footsteps going away. Instead, they hear all three mutants in conversation. This would be their cue to exit. Agility plus sneak, but will lower the difficulty to one due to the guards being distracted. If the lift got to this floor, they need their strength plus athletics checks to get down, and they only need one success. If they need to get down another floor, another sneak is before, difficulty two. If they're climbing down the rope from the top floor, it's strength plus athletics, but the difficulty is three because they know they really don't want to fall. So long as they get two successes, they make the rig. They just fall flat onto it rather than lower themselves gracefully. Oh, and if they fail any of those sneak checks around robots or super mutants, it turns into fights, and I told you the page numbers, so work them out and run them. Once they get down on terra firma, they can head off to get some sleep before checking in with the brothers in the morning, and if they try to go meet with them tonight, they find they're not in the office, so they need to go get some sleep anyway. How the meeting goes with the brothers is obviously directly tied to how the heist went. If they got the item, the brothers are ecstatic and reward them with an extra 30 caps beyond what they agreed to, and they mention that they might have more work for the group in the future. If they didn't get the item, the brothers are disappointed, but they still pay caps. They just give 50 fewer than agreed upon, since you technically didn't finish the job. That's non-negotiable, by the way. Handle a disagreement however you want. That's going to be the scenario for this week. But before we wrap, let's get into what we want to do if the group decides they want to start checking into Jackson Denman. They know they're going to want information on this, and they've gotten everything they can from Paul Vernon. That means they'll need to gather info from their own sources, which gives you another opportunity to use background in the game from survivor contacts, from brotherhood contacts, yada yada. Again, they'll have to shell out caps to get the information they need, and you decide how many caps it'll take. They could also post that they're information seeking, but that would be a bit of a risk. They might also decide that they want to do some good old-fashioned legwork to try to get answers. This is going to cost the group about 150 caps and various bribes and payouts. However, they're going to ultimately get some juicy information that we'll get to next week. One final thing. When the session's done, it's time to level up again. One health point, one special point, one perk. Sweet. And with that, we've come to the end of today's build. As I mentioned, next week we get into tracking down Jackson Denman so that the group can get some good old-fashioned retribution. 
In the meanwhile, I'd ask you to check out our other fine podcast, Role Playing History. This week, we're breaking down the Arcane Magazine Top 50 Role Playing Games of All Time poll. It came out in 1996, so you might be surprised by what's there. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or from our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted property of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are used on this show for entertainment purposes only. To check out all of the fine products from Modifius, check out their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for the show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod, on Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube and Tumblr, it's Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com, and the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we send our group on what could be described as either a revenge mission or a mission for justice, depending on how they look at things. But that's next week, friends. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.